right. Well, good morning, everyone. So we are in Hebrews. Uh, can everybody hear okay? All right. So we're in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, for those of you that weren't here last week, uh, we made it through verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. Um, and so if you look at, at last week as somewhat of an introduction, uh, today's going to also be more of that and then we get into uh, the book again uh, we'll probably make some references uh, several times uh, in the early uh, weeks of our study uh, but we'll probably um, refer back a lot as well so uh, it's worth um, uh, again just reviewing a few things of course the classic question uh, who wrote Hebrews uh, we don't know uh, we know it was written by a believer it was ultimately written uh, by the Holy Spirit and was, um, was written to uh, a group of uh, believers uh, who were Jewish, uh, a group of, let me rephrase that to be more precise. It was written to a congregation of Jews, uh, we believe, because there's no reference to Gentiles in the, in the whole book. Here's how to really picture this. And... I'll emphasize this probably a few times and dad probably will as well picture in some ways Hebrews like you would a sermon okay so unlike the the kind of warm pastoral letters that Paul does this one starts off with a bit of a flourish it has this big introductory set of verses which we're going to cover some today um, it adheres to a lot of the rules that the Greek orators would have used. It's somewhat a, a, maybe a little bit f uh, formal in some ways. Uh, but picture it as a sermon in terms of content and so forth. But I also especially want you to think of it as if you were in a congregation hearing uh, from a pastor in the sense that you've got a mixed audience. Okay, now I've talked about it. We think it's primarily a Jewish audience, but like any church, any congregation, you're going to have a mix of people there, right? You're going to have a mix of people who are believers, who are there to go deeper, to learn more, to get reinforced in the faith, to get encouraged and all that. But you're also going to have some people who aren't believers, right? I think every... You know, every, um, uh, or I don't say every, but almost every uh, evangelical church, is cert uh, certainly uh, most Baptist churches, there's going to be some appeal at the end of the service to those that don't know Jesus to, to come to know Jesus, right? Well, why do people make that appeal? Because the pastor has very high confidence, sometimes statistically, sometimes because they know the backstory that not everybody who is hearing this is a believer. If you don't remember that, there are going to be some passages in Hebrews that will mess you up. Okay? I'll say it again. If you don't remember that sometimes, it's just like a pastor. You know, sometimes they're preaching and you know they're preaching to you because maybe you're a believer and, and you need to tighten up on a few things. But then you know there's sometimes the pastor is clearly talking to somebody that's not you, right? 
if you're a believer and, and the pastor is focused on salvation, you can just feel comfortable that you're where you need to be in Christ. And that's not really directed to you, right? So as we go through Hebrews, there are going to be some passages that he's talking to believers, and then there's going to be some passages that he's talking to unbelievers. To, to bring that home just a little bit more, which again we'll get to more in, like in chapter 6 and 10 and so forth, that even that group of believers is divided. There are some, be- I'm sorry, the group of non-believers is divided. Because there are non-believers, people who haven't put their faith in Christ where their heart is, but intellectually they acknowledge who Jesus is. Right? And then there are going to be some, so they're convinced, but they haven't really put their faith in Christ. Then there's, there are going to be some, some non-believers who aren't even convinced yet. So, you're going to have a pastor who's talking to believers. He's going to be talking to people who know it all, have heard it all, have heard the preaching, have heard the teaching, have been witnessed to by missionaries and prophets that have come to the area. They know it, but they haven't put their faith in Christ. And then there are going to be those people in the congregation who simply aren't there yet. They, they're not even convinced yet. So uh, we'll be able to tell by the content, just like you would in a sermon. You know, Now, sometimes the pastor might say, all right, now I'm talking to you. But sometimes it's more subtle than that, right? You just kind of know the content either applies to me or doesn't apply to me. And, and uh, you're going to have to have that same sort of filtering system uh, because that will really, really help you understand what's being talked about. Okay, so we'll probably emphasize that again and again. But if you just jump on in into the middle of Hebrews and start reading straight through as if every single word is directed to the Christian, you really are going to get messed up. Uh, briefly, um, we know that this was written obviously after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but before the destruction of the temple. It's, we know exactly when the temple was destroyed in, in um, uh, 70 uh, AD. Um, a lot of people think that Hebrews written just maybe a, just a few years before the temple was going was, uh, to be destroyed. And it starts to make sense because you, you just hear this writer, again, the Holy Spirit ultimately, uh, telling people that that whole temple system is not where you need to put your faith in. You need to put your faith in Jesus because everything about Jesus is better than even the best days in the temple, which is going to be great for them to reflect on once the temple doesn't even exist anymore. So um, those are just some background thoughts. Here's a few more, and I'm going to post these on the um, in the study notes uh, on the podcast. But... Uh, Pastor Warren Wiersbe, uh, whose commentaries I use often, has a really good uh, little way of remembering the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Like a good pastor, they all start with the same letter. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll be brief because I'll post them, but first of all, he says, it is a book of evaluation. 
a book of evaluation and the point is you're going to hear multiple times throughout the whole book about how Jesus is better than the old way the new covenant is better than the old covenant the Jesus is better than the angels Jesus is better than so this whole evaluation that what we have in Christ is better than so it's a book of evaluation it's a book of exhortation now there like I said there's going to be some passages here that are kind of hard and tough and that's the reason a lot of people kind of shy away from Hebrews because it doesn't necessarily sound like an encouraging book but one of the reasons is is that it is a book that is exhorting us and exhortation is like encouragement with some oomph behind it all right um, it's encouraging but it's also tweaking you a little bit to get beyond your comfortable status quo all right so it's a book of exhortation it says it's in a book it's a book rather of examination in other words who am I really putting my trust in where's my foundation here so it, it's going to make you look at your roots you know where you're putting your faith in so in that way it's a book of examination he goes on to say it's a book of expectation you'll we're going to hit some history which is going to just be wonderful but it's all about ultimately looking toward the future and our future in Christ and finally he says it's a book of exaltation because it exalts the person and the work of Jesus and ultimately you could say the whole book is really all about Jesus that's the way dad ended last week it's all about Jesus and it's all about how much better Jesus is than anything else you can think of now if we were to, to say that we were just going to take a few weeks out and just talk theology we would probably um, kind of, you know, those of you that are really faithful would just kind of cinch it up and endure it. Um, but it's not really something that we normally just think about being excited about. But sometimes theology is sneaky. Sometimes we get to study theology and we may not even notice. Well, today, theology. Um, theology, of course, is study of God. If you read a theology book which I would recommend in tiny doses uh, you'll see a section called Christology all about who? Jesus well when you when you read through that basically what the the uh, theologians will do they will pull statements from scripture that describe who God is, who the Holy Spirit is, who Christ is. And there are so many passages uh, just within, or so many references just within the first few verses today that by the time we get through these verses, we're going to have a pretty good Christology. We're going to have a really good look at who Jesus really is. So, let's go. Uh, verse 1. We'll back up long because it's not that far to back up. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
who he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world in these last days he has spoken to us by his son that's where we left off last week so already we see this progression at first the fathers then the prophets but it has gotten so much better because now he's spoken to us by his son so already we have this theme of of uh, moving from worse to better and that's going to continue so let's break it down seven reasons why Christ is better seven reasons um, several commentators uh, pick, have picked these out they're, they're pretty obvious as we go through um, I'm going to follow the pattern of uh, uh, MacArthur's uh, commentary number one his heirship in other words being an heir it says whom he appointed the heir of all things reference Psalm 2 7 again this is going to be in the notes you don't have to um, write all these down unless you want Psalm 2 verse 7 says I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I've begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession the ends of the earth everything is Jesus Colossians 1 16 says for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him we'll come back to that verse again in a minute Romans 8 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit we're children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ so the beautiful part about Christ being an heir of everything is that we will share that. Thankfully, we don't have to share in his suffering. We did not have to fully share in his sacrifice, of course, because he did that for us. But we get to be, we get the good part. We get to be fellow heirs in everything. So, um, Jesus is inheritor, so to speak, of everything. Number two. It says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. That's kind of big. We think of, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, but Jesus was in there with it. it Jesus was uh, involved in, in creation. Um, it says in John 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was created was created with the full involvement of Jesus. One commentator says, the common Greek word for world is cosmos, but that's not the word used here. It uses this other word, ionis, which does not mean the material world, but the ages. In other words, Jesus is responsible not only for the physical earth, he's responsible for time, space, energy, matter, the whole thing. He is creator. Number three, radiance. Verse three, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. We know the famous verse in John 8, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. He is the radiance of God's glory. Um, everything about God, he can radiate that, and not just for no one's benefit, but just like we receive warmth from the sun, because Jesus is the radiance of God, he can transmit that light into us. So when he says, I'm the light of the world, it's not just a neutral force. It's, a, it's giving us benefit as a way of, of God emanating out toward us. Um, even though we see, obviously, evil around us. Can you imagine what the world would be like without the light of Jesus in the world? In so many ways, we are charged to be little Christs, right? So we get to do that in a much smaller way. But one of the ways that, that God's grace is upon the entire world is through the radiance of Jesus. And we see it echoed in the concept of, of law and justice. Uh, almost any child, if they get hit unprovoked, they'll know, well, that's not fair. Well, how do you know it's not fair? Well, there's a sense of justice, you know, that in our, in, in our conscience, even in the unbeliever, that echo that we were made in God's image, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, Hebrews was written before the days of copy machines, of photographs, of probably anything approaching a decent mirror even. I mean, I, you could polish metal, of course. How would you have gotten this concept of Jesus being identical to God? How would you have gotten that across? Well, what they did have was the ability to take hardened metal that could be carved, a die, that could be stamped into softer metal, picture like a coin, and now you have the exact image that was on the die is now on the coin. That's what they're saying when they say the exact imprint. That's what the ESV says. What do other translations say? I forgot. Representation. representation. The exact representation. Just and it says the exact imprint of his nature. So this verse, I would think, would cause some problems to people who don't acknowledge the deity of Christ. If Jesus has the exact imprint of God's nature, the, a replica of God's nature, if God is eternal and Jesus is eternal, that's kind of a God thing. If God is creator and Jesus is creator, that's deity we're talking about. And you could take every quality that we know about God, and if you say, 
yet Jesus is that too, then the inevitable conclusion is that Jesus is God. Uh, we won't go into the denominations that believe that, but, but that's, that's the point. He is the exact image. One writer said this message that had been given to the prophets and the, uh, the fathers and so forth, picture that like God had been sending sketches of himself to the people. And now they had the living replica, the living exactness of God in the form of Jesus. Right? I thought that was a good way to put it. Here's what's coming. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's, here's what I look like. Here's some sketches. And it, whoa, now here's my son. So a lot of ways when he says he's spoken to us by his son, it was everything about him not just the things he said but how he treated people what his attitude was like how his heart reached out to people what what he longed for what he hoped for how he encouraged people all of those were the types of things God was trying to tell us the whole time but we just had glimpses we just had sketches all right next his administration is the word there um, again start of verse 3 he's a radiance of the glory of God he's the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power the word uphold there means to support and to maintain think about this that everything about the world is currently being held together by Jesus I know essentially nothing about particle physics except that there is such a thing but it seems like the the more and, and deeper and finer that you you know not just molecules but atoms and not just atoms but the electrons and protons and neutrons and then the parts of those as it gets finer and finer and finer and they start talking about these forces these forces that exist that hold these particles together in just certain ways and you either I, as a physicist I think you either have to believe in God or magic I, I, I mean because I don't know that there's you you get down to the point where like well what makes what is it that makes these things what they are it's, it just the the concept that uh, that there's not something behind it not someone behind it in this case just I gets hard you know I just think it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist I, I just don't have that much faith he upholds the universe by the word of his power that verse in Colossians that we read all things were created in him all things were created through him and for him excellent next after making purification for sins 
Here we have Jesus and his sacrifice, his sacrificial death on the cross. What it says, after making purification for sins, you know, if you were a Jew, if you had hung out with Jews, if you, obviously, we, our, our proposal is that these were Jews. If you didn't get anything else, you would get the concept that you're sinful, right? You've had the law. And by this time, you had all these extra laws that had been added to the law. If you didn't feel burdened by the weight of your sin, you simply were not paying attention. The whole concept of why are we slaughtering all of these animals every single week? Why are we doing that? Why is there literally blood running all over the place on these altars? Why is that? It's not just because we want to have some food. I mean, there was a, this is a bloody mess of a sacrifice, and the whole purpose of which was to somehow cover how bad your sin was. If you didn't think you had a sin problem as a Jew, then you really were not paying attention. That should be ingrained into you. But it says, after making purification for sins, even raised as a Jew, you had to know it wasn't quite doing it. Your sin was, was covered. You kind of, you know, it was kind of like as if that sacrifice could kind of call a truce between you and God. But it didn't do away with it. We'll get into just how much better the sacrifice of Jesus is than all those other sacrifices and why it's so much more efficacious and why it just accomplished so much in subsequent weeks. But here, again, we have this kind of an introduction the writer's giving us all the themes that they're going to come back to. And one of the big ones is what Jesus did to make purification for our sins. You know, he dealt with the sin problem once for all. We couldn't do anything unless it was dealt with. So this opened that. Next. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Probably, of all the things we've talked about so far, this may be the most regal, the most impressive, the most um, complete. It says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this got broken down. Again, it's going to be in the notes. It says, Jesus sitting down at the Father's right hand signifies at least four things. He sat down as a sign of honor. Philippians 2.11 Every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To be seated at the right hand of the Father is honor. Secondly, he sat down as a sign of authority. He's the right hand of God. This is 1 Peter. Having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He sat down as a ruler. He had authority. He sat down to rest. Work was done. 
Hebrews 10, 12, which we'll get to, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was finished as far as you know, making things right. Um, is there still things he's doing from the right hand? Yes, that's number four. He sat down to intercede for us. Romans 8.34 said, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So to the extent that our basic little human minds can picture this as Jesus, together with God the Father, speaking to God on our behalf. Have you ever been in a bit of a pickle and you didn't feel like you had enough weight to your position or argument or whatever to get what you really needed, so what do you do? You, you go talk to somebody that could put in a good word for you, right? In the hopes that they would be in a better position to make the case than you would. You know, the classic, well, I know a guy, right, who could make the case. You know, can he help it with such and such? No, but, but I know a guy. Well, if you know Jesus, then you know God. And, and again, in the whole mystery of the Trinity, somehow Jesus is interceding on our behalf. This is, you know, one of the unfortunate things with our Catholic brothers and sisters, you know, praying to Mary in the hopes that Mary could get a word in to the Son, is the way the thinking goes, right? So you pray to Mary, Mary talks to Jesus, Jesus talks to God. We don't have to do that. Jesus is a, knows us and loves us, and he's interceding for us. So he is exalted. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, how good? How good is that? That's pretty good theology, right? Seven things about who Christ is. Now, this will come in handy as you start to hear from the world. As you start to hear about denominations that don't think Jesus is God, you can kind of think, wait a minute. That's not right, because it says in Hebrews, he's exactly God. The exact imprint, the, the best picture they could come up with from back in the day. You have people who say there's extra stuff do you have to do to get into heaven. Well, no, that's not right. Hebrews says he handled the purification for sins. So much so that he sat down because it was done. As you start to take the, the things that you hear and put it through the filter of what you know about Jesus, it really clears up a lot of stuff. It really clears up a lot of misconceptions. One um, commentator made the, the point, it says theology is important, perhaps more so now than ever. And it says warm-hearted, devotional, application-oriented Christianity should be encouraged. But grave danger focuses, lies in focusing just on the practical th teachings of Christianity 
to the neglect of the theological. How many times have you heard maybe a pastor or a book, whatever, be praised, and perhaps rightly so, saying, you know, that was just so practical to me. I now know how to resolve things with my neighbor. Is that a bad thing? No. So much of scripture is extremely practical. But the practicalities of how to resolve disputes with your neighbor doesn't help you as you're trying to filter out false doctrine and to know if what somebody is saying is just dressed up garbage. It doesn't help you as much as having some of this stuff in your back pocket. So that's, you know, theology is still important because when you start to really understand who Jesus is, it, it helps. <laughs> it really helps. In fact, you could even say if you don't acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he was and has done the things he did and has done the things for us that claim he did, if you don't know that Jesus and have that hope, then you really don't have much hope. You know, how could you hope in something who just had a little authority? Well, somebody above them could change their mind. We're, we're putting our hope in the person who made the whole thing. I'm good with that. That's, you know, a real Jesus. You know, there was this whole Jesus seminar several years ago. Remember that? All these... Uh, 70 some odd you know fancy theologians who don't hold the high view of scripture they kind of got around to at least acknowledging that there probably was someone named Jesus who lived back then but they really couldn't get their head around that this was God you know I'm so sorry for them they have no hope anyway a real Jesus offers real hope this concept too, just one final thing, just because I like the whole science behind it. I don't know if you have read the popular press. There was something called the Fermi of physicists, a Fermi paradox. Anybody read about this? The Fermi paradox basically says, we know there are so many stars, billions of stars. We know there are so many planets around all of these stars, billions and billions. So why haven't we seen any evidence of extraterrestrial life? That's the question. If you take the view that everything happened by chance and you basically multiply by so many chances, then why haven't we seen anybody? That's the paradox that's put out there. Well, there's a, another guy named Drake who came up with an equation that's about that long to try to calculate that number. In other words, what are the odds? Well, somebody did a paper a few months back that basically said, there's a really good chance we're by ourselves. Now, it took lots of fancy people to come to that conclusion. In other words, it's looking like there's no aliens out there. I mean, I like sci-fi as much as the next person, maybe more than most, but 
I keep it where it's supposed to be in fiction, right? <laughs> does, that, does the Bible say God couldn't have another world? It doesn't. But the concept that we came into the world by chance, uh, you know, what makes us so special? If it's not, you know, I think that's the part that these scientists are missing. If it's so rare that it's happened even one other time, which is what they're saying, that there's a highly likelihood chance that it has not even happened one other time in trillions of chances, how can they get a, their head around the fact that it actually happened at all? Just by chance. Anyway, we are going to get to some really practical things. We are going to get to some nitty-gritty and how we get along and what our faith is and all that. We're going to get to that. But the writer starts off with a lot of theology, specifically Christology, and it's going to be so good as we get into it. So remember, Christ is better than everything, and pay attention to who is being talked to. All right? All right, we're going to... Verse 4 talks about another attribute becoming more superior to the angels. That launches into a whole other section of verses. By the way, from verse 1 through verse 4 is one sentence in Greek. Right? That's one sentence. We've broken it down. We're going to do 4 and on next week. All right, questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the writer of Hebrews to just peel back just a little bit to give us that much better view of who you are through Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us, for being our creator, for being our mediator. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, we thank you for the power to live each day to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.